All right, so uh, I think most of you know me. My name is John Reams. I'm an elder here at Grace PCA. Uh, we are continuing our series on some of the great hymns of the faith. Uh, and as you can see, we are now, of course, working through some of the more prominent and poignant, uh, I was looking for alliteration, particularly with P's, uh, more prominent and poignant Christmas carols. Uh, these are carols that we all know and love, uh, carols which are rich with biblical truth about the birth and the incarnation of Jesus Christ and about its meaning and about its significance for us. Uh, so before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. Uh, and we thank you for this beautiful carol so filled with spiritual truth. We pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand the truth of your word and to respond to it in faith. These things we ask through our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So it's, it's so important that we understand the beautiful poetry of the familiar words of these carols uh, that we sing every year. All right. So think about this. We sing these carols every year. Therefore, our understanding of these carols should be better every year, right? However, many of us, including myself, uh, will tend to plateau in our understanding of the carols because we sing them so often that we can essentially sing them in many cases without thinking about them, right? Have, we ever, have you ever done that? Have you ever read through a page of a book and then realized, I have no idea what I was just reading because I was thinking about something else, right? Uh, the same thing can happen in singing hymns. Um, so we can very often sing them without thinking about them. Now, I, I uh, submit to you today that there's an easy fix to that. Think about them. There we go. So we're going to make a concerted effort to understand the words as you read them and as you sing them. Um, many of us have these carols memorized. Uh, one of my favorite stories to tell is that Abigail, when we were driving from Abilene, Texas, to Myrtle Beach for Christmas one year, when I worked in a different state, um, I started attempting to sing a Christmas carol just to uh, cheer up the car as we're driving on a 24-hour drive. And I start singing away in the manger. And it occurs to me that, oh my goodness, you know, after the first four words of away in the manger, yeah, I'm lost. So, but then immediately my little three-year-old Abigail, who's sitting in the back seat, says, no, daddy, it's like this. And she proceeds to sing, Verse one, verse two. Now, I don't remember how far he went, uh, but that was that was pretty humbling for me. Um, uh, but that's another story. All right. So there is definitely something special about Christmas carols. We all know it. Even churches that seem scared to death of a hymn book or refuse to sing anything that wasn't composed in the last month, they still sing these carols. That's interesting, isn't it? Um, so there's something to these carols. Hymns in general serve as, um, what's a good word? As windows, all right? Hymns in general can serve as windows into the biblical narrative. This is why hymns are worth holding on to, by the way. If our greatest desire is to know God and His Word, then we should want to sing these great hymns of the faith. Good hymn texts are designed to poetically express truths based directly on particular scriptural passages. There are too many churches out there 
who desire who do desire to know God in his word, uh, but they have a greater desire that can move in sometimes when it comes to worship. Uh, my dad refers to it as the three ends. I think it's numbers, nickels, and noise. Uh, we've walked into churches before that they uh, where there was a sign that says, please no children during worship. And this is for real. And then for the rest of the adults, they had a big uh, basket of earplugs. Right? right there, that should be a clue. Um, anyway, so uh, that, that sometimes idolatrous desire leads to a greater level of spiritual starvation among the congregation. So there's a reason uh, that we sing hymns in this church and we place such a great value on it. We don't sing hymns because we've all, you know, people say that, oh, well, that's music that our older generations listen to. I can promise you in the 50s and 60s, people were not driving around in their cars listening to four-part harmonic settings of chorale tunes, all right? Uh, that's not the case. Um, we don't sing them because we've fallen in love with vertical four-part harmony chorale settings of random simple melodies. That's not why we sing these. We sing these for the theology. Good theology leads to good doxology, and the opposite is true too. And when we sing Christmas hymns, we sing and hear biblical truths about the birth and uh, infancy of Jesus Christ and the significance of that uh, for us as his redeemed people. One more point uh, before I move on. Not only do we want hymn text to enlighten us about Scripture, let me get this ready, technology. Uh, not only do we want hymn text to enlighten us about Scripture, but we want Scripture to enrich our ability to sing hymns. Think about that, right? In other words, the better I know the Bible, the more these hymns will mean to me. That's important. Uh, another way to think about it, we know in, our, in the Reformed faith the importance of praying back God's word and his promises to him when we pray. Likewise, we also sing back God's word and his promises when we worship in song. Our hymn today may not be as well known as a Christmas carol. Uh, there's actually debate about whether, whether it is or not. Uh, but uh, but it's not as well known as a Christmas carol, say, as Joy to the World, uh, Away in the Manger, uh, O Little Town, and so forth. Um, it is a hymn, though, that we all know and love. All right? I mentioned to somebody earlier, Joe Fowler, which hymn we're talking about, and he immediately uh, went into song. All right? Now, based on his singing, I did move away quickly. But still, it tells me he knows the song. Um and of course, as you see, it's the great hymn and Christmas carol, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Words composed by Charles Wesley. Uh, if you'd like, you can turn to number, I think it's 196 in your hymnal uh, uh, as we talk about this. In fact, it might be a good idea to do that real, real, real fast because there's, there's an important point here. Number 196 in your hymnal. Now, as you look at this hymn, we should remember that only verses 1 and 4 were actually composed by Charles Wesley. It doesn't mean that verses 2 and 3 are heresy, I promise. Uh, and just, just for your knowledge, verses 2 and 3 were written by a, a guy named Mark Hunt in 1978. 
uh, and he was associated with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And I think there's probably a note about that in, uh, in the hymn book. Uh, but we will focus on 1 and 4 this morning, because, of course, we want to go over the original text uh, that Charles Wesley wrote. Uh, if there's time, I might talk a little bit about 2 and 3, but we'll see how that goes. Come Thou Long Expected Jesus was probably one of the first hymns uh, that Charles Wesley wrote, and it was published in a collection of hymns called Hymns on the Nativity of, uh, hymns on the Nativity of Our Lord. And this is the page where it, where it appears uh, in, uh, in that collection. Interestingly, I love stuff like this. Interestingly, this first edition was rushed to the press to be ready in time for Christmas. And it was first published published in 1745 on, everybody look at your watch or your phone, on December 17th. What's today's date? Yep, good. That would have been embarrassing, embarrassing if I was wrong about that. Yeah, so it was, it was, it was first published today 278 years ago. That's pretty fun. Um, anyway, so you can tell by the name that the theme of the collection uh, was the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some dispute whether the hymn should be a Christmas carol or not. Uh, hymnologist Carl Drew put it this way, and, and I quote, Despite the title of the collection in which this text was published, and despite the four appearances of the word born here, this is not so much a hymn about nativity as it is about incarnation. The details of the birth are never mentioned. No manger, no shepherds, no angels. Yet there is an awareness here that the larger mystery being celebrated leads to the sending of the Holy Spirit and comes full circle in Christ's reign and glory. When God's people will find freedom from fear and sin, when hope will be fulfilled, and when human hearts will be aligned with God's saving purposes, end quote. So, uh, so is it a Christmas carol? Sure, if we want it to be, right? Why not? Why not? Uh, in fact, in our hymnal, if you look at verses 2 and 3, and I think it's in verse 3, uh, composed by Mark Hunt, he does make several allusions to the birth. All right. So from my point of view, I think of it as a Christmas carol, uh, and that's fine. Uh, so is it just a hymn or a Christmas carol? The answer is yes. Uh, there are many biblical references uh, in this hymn, and some of them are, there we go, Matthew eleven twenty eight, First 28, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Psalm 68, 34, Joel 3, 16, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel 36, 26, Romans 5, 5, um, 2 Corinthians 1, 22, Ephesians 2, 8, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Now, I don't, I don't read all of these references with the expectation you're going to remember them all. I just want to make the point of how saturated in Scripture this hymn is. That's not all of them, by the way. Uh, but the two that most stirred Wesley to write this hymn are this one. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And Luke 2.25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Uh, and per Charles Wesley, these were the two that, that, that stirred him to initially uh, begin writing this, this hymn. In these two stanzas, there are 16 little math here, there's 16 scriptural allusions. 
uh, or biblical thoughts to be found. Eight in the first verse and eight in the second verse. By the way, when I say second verse, um, I'm referring to the fourth verse in your, in your hymnal because we're talking about the two that Charles Wesley wrote, so the first and second. I'll probably go back between second, saying second and fourth, uh, so sorry about that. Um, anyway, we'll come back to these later. First, I want to say a few words about Charles Wesley. Last week, as I recall, uh, Jacob lamented about um, having to use Wikipedia to find out some information about uh, one of one of the men that he talked about. And uh, so as an encouragement to him, uh, is he here, Jacob? He pointed me out last week, so yeah, all right. Okay, so anyway, as an encouragement to him, uh, I want to read a few introductory sentences about Charles Wesley from Wikipedia. And I quote, Charles Wesley was an English leader of the Methodist movement. Wesley was a prolific hymn writer who wrote over 6,500 hymns during his lifetime. His works include And Can It Be, Christ the Lord is Risen Today, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, The Carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. He was a younger brother of Methodist founder John Wesley and Anglican Anglican cleric Samuel Wesley and became the father of musician Samuel Wesley and grandfather of musician Samuel Sebastian Wesley. So clearly they like the name Samuel. Um, Oh, that's him. There we go. Um, Now guess what his dad's name was. You guessed it, Samuel. Right. So Samuel and Susanna Wesley, they had 19 children. Their 15th child was John, uh, and he was born on June 17, 1703 in Epworth, Epworth, England. Remember that name, Epworth. That'll come back later. Charles Wesley was the 18th child. Uh, and remember, John was 15, Charles was 18, and he was born on December 18th, 1707. And December 18th is tomorrow. Um, if you already know about John or Charles, or you know about why the name Methodist uh, came to be applied to, to that group, the following quote about his family life will not be surprising. And I quote, Life growing up in the Wesley house was described as rigidly structured, with exact times for meals, prayers, and sleep. Susanna homeschooled the children. In addition to the three R's, she also taught the children religion and manners. They learned to be quiet, obedient, hardworking, and methodical in everything that they did. Charles was educated at Oxford University, where his brothers also studied. While there, he was part of a club that was referred to as uh, the Holy Club. Now, other members of this club you might recognize, of course, are John Wesley was in it, and there was also a guy named George Whitfield uh, that was part of that club. And by the way, it was scoffing students um, and other critics that created the name Holy Club. They actually, they actually applied that, uh, that name as a point of derision. Just like the word Methodist was also coined as a point of derision. Uh, there are multiple accounts of fellow students jeering at them and calling them Methodists. Ah! Um, so there we go. Uh, now, were these young men in the Holy Club, were they worthy of such derision by other students? Well, you be the judge. Uh, I want to I want to read for you a couple of things that these dastardly young men uh, were involved in in the Holy Club. They set aside time for prayer. They examined their personal spiritual lives. They studied the Bible, met and studied together. And now it gets really bad. 
They took food to poor families, visited lonely people in prison, taught orphans how to read, and, and I kind of get this one, and they studied and discussed the Greek New Testament as well as the classics. So um, that's quite a motley crew, isn't it? Uh, we're going to now move on from the horror of that uh, and, uh, and talk about a little more about Charles. Now, Charles and John famously traveled to Georgia, um, and Charles stayed here for about a year. He was, he was appointed, make sure I get this right, the Secretary of Indian Affairs, and he served as chaplain at Fort Frederica. Some of you may have visited there. We, we have um, Fort Frederica on St. Simon's Island. And for a number of reasons that we won't go into, um, he was not completely well accepted by everybody, so he ended up being commissioned back to England as, and this is another one I have to read, as the bearer of dispatches to the trustees of the colony. So in August of 1736, he sailed from Charleston, South Carolina, uh, never to return again. Once back in England, he came under the influence of Count Nicholas Zinzendorf and the Moravians. That's a Moravian star, by the way, if any of you don't know that. The Morav- there were a lot of Moravians in Georgia, North Carolina, and Pennsylvania. Uh, so it was very common growing up in North Carolina to see this as a Christmas ornament, ornament hanging in uh, the front of a lot of houses. A real quick note, uh, interesting note about Count Zinzendorf. Uh, he led a small community to found a mission in the colony of Pennsylvania. And the mission was established on Christmas Eve and was named... Bethlehem. So you can see there it is even today. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Charles stated in 1738 that he found rest for his soul. So many of us are aware of the conversion experience that the Wesley brothers spoke about having in 1738. Uh, Charles experienced a conversion, and three days later, John did the same. I found a quote by John uh, Wesley that may approximate the experience uh, that Charles had as well. I think some of you know this. I remember Pastor David mentioned this a a few months back. Um, In the evening, this is John Wesley, in the evening I went very unwillingly to a society on Aldersgate Street where one was reading uh, Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Jesus Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So this is important because immediately after this, for both of them, but of course today we're focusing on Charles, he felt a renewed strength to spread the gospel. And it was around this time too that he began composing and writing all these hymn texts that he's so well known for. One author stated that Charles' conversion experience uh, had a clear impact on his doctrine, uh, particularly concerning the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, so remember this when you see hymns by him after 1738. Charles was very often uh, would very often communicate in his hymns uh, the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the, depra- the depravity of mankind, and our personal accountability to God. 
So there's a lot more I could say about Charles, uh, such as getting kicked out of churches, preaching to crowds in fields, friendship with George Whitfield, the Methodist revival, facing mob violence in Sheffield, uh, marrying Sarah Gwynn, three children uh, who survived infancy, one of which became an organist for the royal family, and another child that became such a talented musician that he became known as the, quote, English Mozart. Uh, Charles Wesley died on uh, March 29, 1788 in London, and there's a memorial stone um, that stands in the gardens of Marylebone High Street uh, close to his place of burial. Now listen to these numbers. In the course of his career, Charles Wesley composed anywhere between 6,500 and 10,000 hymns, many of which are still popular. So 6,500 to 10,000 is a pretty wide range, but I can say this, we can say this with pretty much surety that he composed no less than 6,500. And um, I'm talking fast today because I think I have time. So I'm going to go ahead and read off the titles of all 6,500 hymns right now. And, and don't worry. Now, don't worry. You think I'm kidding. Um, I'm going I'm to read fast. Arise, my soul, arise. And can it be that I should gain? Christ the Lord is risen today. Hark the herald angels sing. Jesus, lover of my soul. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Rejoice, the Lord is king. All right, actually, I take that back. I'm not going to be able to get through all uh, 6,500. I'll stop there. But you get the point. Wesley's hymns are notable as interpretations of Scripture. Uh, His feelings on every occasion of importance, whether private or public, found their best expression in a hymn. And these are occasions such as his own conversion, uh, his own marriage, uh, the earthquake panic, the rumors of an invasion from France, uh, the defeat of um, Prince Charles Edward, I believe, at Culloden. Uh, um, every festival of the Christian church, every doctrine of the Christian faith, striking scenes from scripture history, striking scenes from his own history, uh, the deaths of friends, all of these furnished occasions for him to exercise his gift and calling. He also produced paraphrases of Psalms, contributing to the long tradition of English metrical psalmody. Uh, a notable feature of his treatment of the Psalms is the introduction of Jesus into it, uh, kind of continuing a tradition of Christological readings of the Psalms, evidence in the translations of John Patrick and Isaac Watts. We've heard, we've heard those names. Uh, the introduction of Jesus into the Psalms was also in the point, often the point of controversy. Even some of his own family members uh, were very much against it. Um, and his brother Samuel Wesley wrote a poem against that practice. But uh, of particular interest is Charles Wesley's manuscript psalms held in the archives at the Pitts Theology Library. Anybody know where that is? At Emory University. That's a pretty library. Uh, real quickly, before I move on, I want to, say, I want, I want to end with, uh, about Charles with two very interesting uh, facts um, about his legacy. Uh, beyond the 65.3 million hymns he wrote, of course. Uh, First, in 1995, he was listed in the Gospel Music Hall of Fame by the Gospel Music Association. Now, I understand there was no reception for this honor uh, because neither he nor any of his immediate family were able to attend. Um, Second, Wesley is still remembered for his ministry while at St. Simon's Island by the uh, South Georgia Conference of of the United Methodist Church. And uh, in 1950, the conference opened a Christian retreat center on the island um, by the banks of the Frederick River. And they, de- they designated it, quote, Epworth 
by the sea. And of course, you remember that, you remember that town, and that's in honor of uh, their birthplace. So as I mentioned earlier, there are 16 phrases. Here's where we get to the meat of, 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 of the lesson this morning. There are 16 phrases in the two verses that he wrote, each communicating a biblical truth. There's eight, there's eight in the first verse, and there are eight in the second verse. And I'm going to go through these, so hang on. Verse 1, phrase 1. Now this one's easy. Come thou long expected Jesus. So here, we're supposed to look at the first coming of Christ from the perspectives of, perspective of an Old Testament saint. Not unlike Simeon uh, in that passage from Luke, right? Uh, there was a longing expectation that the Messiah is coming into the world. Uh, think of it this way. Ever since Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, uh, the first few verses of that, uh, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, you know, we could go on. Uh, the people of God for thousands of years have been waiting for the one who was, quote, the seed of the woman, the one who was the Messiah, the anointed of God, uh, who would come and deliver his people. But there is a beautiful irony here, if that's the right word. Uh, the Old Testament saint would have not known the name Jesus in relation to the Messiah. All right? We as New Testament or New Covenant saints do know his name and have the privilege of calling upon the name of the person of the Messiah. And as I was, I was thinking about this, there were a couple of many, many verses that came to mind, and I want to share two of them with you. There, uh, Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Romans 10, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. All right, uh, verse 1, phrase 2, born to set thy people free. This is why Jesus came. He came as a redeemer and as a deliverer. His work was to set his people free. Set his people free from what? Um, from our sins and fears release us. Jesus is a redeemer uh, or a deliverer, uh, but what did he deliver us from? Our sin, our guilt, our fear of condemnation. He, de he delivers us from the dread, that's a great word, he delivers us from the dread of God's judgment. Can he do that? Yes, and he did, praise God. All right, next. Let us find our rest in thee. And let me add, thee alone, right? The only place we have to look for salvation is Jesus, the Messiah. The only place, right? In him and him alone. We can't say that too much. In him and him alone can we find rest, uh, refuge, and redemption from our sins. The reason I'm doing it this way, I want you to see the thought that Charles put into making an argument, right? He's trying to put together a logical step-by-step uh, -step argument. So here in uh, phrase five, Israel's strength and consolation. Even though they would have not known the name of Jesus, we know as we look back from this side of the cross that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament messianic prophecies um, that one day the Messiah would come and strengthen, comfort, and restore God's ancient people, Israel. Phrase 6, hope of all the earth art thou. Jesus is not the only redeemer of God, or excuse me, Jesus is not only the redeemer of God's ancient people, the people of Israel, but he is also the hope of Gentiles, all peoples everywhere, even us here in Douglasville. Phrase 7, 
dear desire of every nation. Now, once again, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one, the only one who can answer the need of whom? Every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Dear desire of every nation. Praise 8. Joy of every longing heart. Is there a heart longing for peace with God? Jesus is the answer. Is there a heart longing for reconciliation with God? Jesus is the answer. Is there a heart that longs to have communion with God? Yes, and you know the answer to that. Jesus is the only one who can give that heart of joy. And thus ends verse 1. Did you notice that every idea uh, so far is derived from Scripture? And frankly, that shouldn't be a surprise because that's what good hymns and good hymn writers do, right? They don't pontificate to us. They share Scripture with us, and that's a good thing. All right, well, let's move on to the next verse. All right, verse 2, born, uh, phrase 1. Born thy people to deliver. Jesus the Messiah was born. He became a human. He did this for the purpose of our redemption. That was the purpose of him uh, being born into this world. Phrase 2. Born a child and yet a king. Now, this presents another one of those beautiful ironies, again, if that's the right word, uh, of the Christian or of the Christmas story. Jesus, though a uh, child, though born a child in a manger um, in Nowheresville, uh, was the king of his people. Born a child and yet a king. Phrase three, born to reign in us forever. Look at the word in. I want you to see that. Look at the word in. Jesus' work was to establish his reign and his rule in his people. His purpose was to establish the reign of God in us. Phrase four. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Think about the Lord's Prayer. That's something else, by the way, that we can all kind of, uh, we probably have memorized and we can rattle off without thinking, which is not good. Again, thinking is good most of the time. Um, part of that prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, done on earth as it, as it is in heaven. We're asking when we pray that for the Lord Jesus to reign in us now. Come, Lord Jesus, and reign among, reign among us. Come and reign in us now. And he does, full of grace. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. Praise 5. By thine own eternal spirit. We know that if Jesus is going to reign in us, this is only done through the work of whom? Of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, Wesley petitions the Holy Spirit uh, to work in us to establish the reign of Jesus Christ. Phrase 6. This is a petition uh, for Christ to be the only Lord in the lives of all of his people. As believers, we all profess Christ. We trust in Christ for salvation. Yet we know that our hearts are marvelously fickle, aren't they? Um, and they're constantly like a car with bad alignment or driving a car and you take your hands off the steering wheel. Inevitably, it's going to start to at some point move one way or the other. Uh, it's always veering towards the ways of the world, of the flesh, uh, or of the devil. We must petition for the sovereignty of Christ in our lives and only the sovereignty of Christ in our lives. He is our only Lord. We must live, uh, we must all live as though he is our only master. Why? Because he is. Lord Jesus, rule in all our hearts 
alone. Phrase 7. By thine all-sufficient merit. We find here another petition. It's a petition for God to save his people by the merit of Jesus Christ. And so why are we asking God to do something we already know that he did? Well, it's simply the acknowledgement that he did it and that he continues to do this for his people. This is really the key phrase, uh, by the way. This is really the key phrase uh, in in this verse. So never let this one slip by you. Um, Only Jesus' work, only his work, his perfection, his perfect obedience can save us. Do our merits save us? No. They will only condemn us, won't they? Do our works save us? No. They will only condemn us. If we were to stand before God and be measured by our fulfillment of the law, every single one of us would be condemned. But Christ's work, his fulfillment of the law, actively and passively, his perfect life, his death on our behalf, fulfilling the demands of the law, this is what saves us. And remember, Jesus uh, fulfilled not only the penalty, penalty of the law in his death, but he also fulfilled the law in general. He fulfilled the law in his life by his obedience to it, even from the time of his infancy. Jesus fulfilled the law in place of whom? In place of all who would trust in him. So we must understand what he did. We must put our trust in him, and we must then follow him as Lord of our lives. Verse 2, phrase 8. This calls on Christ to bring to fruition the promise of the gospel. Everlasting communion with the living God. So as we sing this hymn, especially these last two verses, remember that it's only by Christ's all-sufficient merit that we will be raised to eternal life, right? And if you think about this, this is awesome stuff. This is why hymn writers write about it. This is why gospel-believing congregations sing about it, should sing about it. Um, I'm going to say a couple words about the music. doesn't look like that, but it sure is pretty. Um, the music is very nice, uh, but uh, not nearly as nice as the text. Uh, I want to say real quickly just a couple words about uh, two types of hymns. Some were written as text, and then music was written specifically for that text. Others were written as text, and then years later, a publisher or collector uh, would look around and try to find a pre-existing tune that fits the meter of the text and then apply it. All right. Now, this can actually make a big difference. If the music is written specifically for that text, then we're very likely to be uh, to hear some what we call musical imagery, uh, or more specifically, we call it word painting. Um, so if I'm writing, for example, about something that's going up, the music is going to go up. If I'm writing about something that's going down, the music is going to go down. Uh, we can use rhythmic, melodic, uh, harmonic uh, shifts that complements the meaning or the mood of the text. Hymns like this, by the way, hymns like that, I should say, hymns like that give guys like me a lot to talk about. However, this is not one of those hymns. Uh, The first musical setting of this text was in 1767 and was to a tune called the Nativity Hymn, otherwise, uh, which is interesting because that tune was otherwise unknown and unused outside of that collection. In 1792, it was put to a tune called Welsh uh, by an unknown composer. The first one that really stuck is uh, Stuttgart, 
All right. Now you, we know this. We know that melody. There's, there's our, in our hymn book. We have that melody, and, and you would recognize it. Um, it's also been set to a tune called "The Cross of Christ," uh, written by Sir John Stainer. The tune that we use and is also most uh, commonly used is Heifredal, uh, and that was composed by Rowland Hugh Pritchard in 1830 when he was only 19 years old. Uh, it had been used with other texts and was first used with this text in 1912, uh, same year of the Titanic song. So it was, first, it was first used with this text in 1912 from a collection called The Book of Praise put out by the Presbyterian Church in Canada, eh? Well, how are we doing on time? I want to make sure I give us time to, to, to sing through it. Um, I want, just in, in closing, if, if all the Old Testament saints could wait for the first coming of the Messiah, then so can we wait with faith and hope for the second coming of the Messiah. If Simeon can wait in faith and hope for the coming of the Messiah, then so can we for Christ's return. And remember, Simeon knew nothing of this, yet he trusted God. We know all of this. We can hold the Gospels in our hands, can't we? All right. Uh, when we sing this carol or others like it, when we, when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, we will be reading and singing truths that uh, Simeon was not privileged to. We have every reason to live in expectant hope. When we sing the first verse, remember what the Old Testament saints looked forward to and that it was fulfilled. When we sing the second verse, remember what we can look back to and look forward to and that it will be fulfilled as well. Our long-expected Messiah who promised his people that he would come again with clouds and glory descending. And on that day, those who accept him, those who embrace him as Messiah, who trust in him alone for salvation, they will be ushered into the fullness of the blessings in the kingdom of God. But those who reject them on that day will be cast out. They will be judged based on their own keeping of the law, and they will be condemned. So as we sing these songs and read these passages this season, it is our business to respond in faith to these words. That's always our business, right? Uh, these are the wonderful words of life. Another good hymn I like. Um, those who believe these words will have life. They'll have eternal life. Those who reject these words will not. May God enable us to respond in faith throughout this Christmas uh, season and beyond uh, to his word. I want to go ahead and sing this. So let's have everybody stand. And again, we're on uh, hymn number 196. And uh, I'll give you a couple pitches before we start. All right, here we go.
Good. Good. That was very nice. So I hope the next time that you read through these, um, read through these, these words, uh, that you'll remember some of what we talked about this morning. Right? If nothing else, just a reminder that you need to focus on these words that we're singing on any hymn. Right? Um, and it's, it's certainly worth the effort to do that. Uh, so um, let's go ahead and pray uh, and in and, and this time of study. Our Lord and our God, we praise you for the giving of the gift of the long-expected Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We ask that by your Spirit we would believe on him as he is offered in the gospel for salvation. May it be that every time we read or hear uh, or sing these words of life, that you will stir our souls towards understanding, repentance, and thanksgiving. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.